this time let's turn to our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 9. And we'll start reading at verse 46. But to give honor to our glorious Lord and to His Holy Word, if you're able, let's stand as we give honor to our God and in the reading of Holy Scripture and the hearing of Scripture. Verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But when they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, we pray that you would help us to receive this, your holy word, to understand and to believe, and that thereby from your word that we would bear forth much fruit. Help us, we pray, to be those who seek not greatness, but who seek holiness, who seek not greatness according to this world's measure, but greatness in your kingdom. Help us, we pray. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Maybe of those of you who know me well, you probably know that I, I sometimes can be a, a bit literal in many ways. And when people say a statement, I like them to say a statement that can be true if they claim an absolute truth statement. And I do like Dave Ramsey and the wonderful advice that he has given with so many people. He has helped so many people get out of debt. He's helped so many people to gain wealth to where that they don't have to struggle with a load of debt and many things. But I, uh, I just recently listened to a little bit of a YouTube uh, presentation and the title of this last one that I listened to was anyone can become a millionaire it's nice to encourage people but I don't like inaccurate statements 
Um, what about the person who has mental impairments or physical impairments? I, I once had a patient who had a motorcycle accident who couldn't get up and put his clothes on or go to the toilet or take a bath or even feed himself. He was basically totally dependent, um, physically and mentally disabled. Can he become a millionaire? Now, I open this up as a question because you know we have to be careful with our words but we should encourage people to greatness. And I think that Dave Ramsey has helped great, a great many people and has encouraged them to greatness of not being strapped by debt, but to living more independently. And, and some people, through his help, have been able to use their wealth to help others in need. But let's think about this. When Jesus talks about greatness in this passage... Is he pairing greatness in this passage with wealth? Not really. Let's, let's look a little bit closer at today's passage and we'll see how our Lord Jesus defines greatness. Now, this argument that we just read about among the disciples follows immediately after something that you think would bring them to mourning and tears rather than arguing about greatness. Jesus told them, earlier he says the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men he's saying i will be delivered into the hands of wicked men look again at verse 45 though the fact that this selfish argument follows immediately after this revelation is proof of what verse 45 says came to pass but they did not understand this statement because, and it was concealed to them. You could say because it was concealed uh, from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. If they really understood that statement, they wouldn't be arguing. They would be trying to, they wouldn't argue about greatness. They might have been trying to argue with Christ about telling him to not go that way as Peter did. Lord, don't go to the, don't go and sacrifice yourself for sinners. Maybe some of them would have wanted to prepare for a great fight, like Peter did with his sword, wanting to cut off a head of one of the servants of the great high priest. And if that would have happened, if they would have understood the statement, maybe many of them would have died in a fight or been crucified along with Jesus. But the plan of Christ and the plan of our triune God is that the the sheep would be scattered when the shepherd would be struck. And when he was struck, he was not struck merely by men, but by the wrath of the Father um, due for us sinners. He was a sacrifice that took away the wrath due unto us. We know later on that most of them would die in, a, in martyrdom. But in this particular passage, they weren't thinking about martyrdom. They were thinking about who would be greatest in the kingdom. As we look at today's text, the main focus is we are to see what Jesus teaches us concerning the path of greatness. What does Jesus teach us about the path of greatness? We'll see this in three main points. Receive others in Christ. Secondly, don't hinder other Christians. And thirdly, don't seek to destroy those who reject Christ.
Let's look at this first main point. Receive others in Christ. Look at verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Often when we read this passage in Scripture, we have to say, what's the background? Where did this come from? Why did they start arguing about greatness? Now, we don't know for sure, but a contributing factor could be the Mount of Transfiguration. Only three, James, Peter, and John, were allowed to go up on the mount to see the glory of Christ in His fullness. And then they saw Elijah and Moses speaking to Him. And when they came down from the mountain, they probably said, this is what we saw. So you can imagine if there was an argument about greatness, well, surely one of the greatest will be the ones privileged to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Another argument could be, Peter said, well, Jesus did credit it to me that the Father revealed it unto me that I knew that he was the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. Maybe he could think that he was great because God had revealed that to him. We don't know how the argument went, but we know here in this text that the argument about who was going to be the greatest did not happen in front of Jesus. They were likely too embarrassed to be so selfish in front of their Lord. But look at verse 47. It tells us when Jesus spoke to them, he was knowing what they were thinking in their heart. He knew what each one of them was thinking in their heart about exalting themselves to greatness. This is an evidence that Jesus is divine, that he knew the hearts of men. Prophets and apostles were able to exercise healing, able to cast out demons, but there's never been a prophet or apostle that is able to tell what goes on in the hearts of men. Just as God knows what goes on each and every one of our hearts, Jesus could tell what was going on in the hearts and intents and the thoughts of a man. And that's how we know a proof here that he is divine. But in response to their arguing, uh, Jesus took a child and stood him beside him. Verse 47. And then look what he then said to them. Verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Brothers and sisters, we ought to seek to receive a child in Christ's name to bring them into the household of faith. And this involves a commitment to teach and to nurture them, to teach them the word of God, the word of Christ, and the, and the ways of Christ. And to teach children, it's not like teaching adults, it takes patience, time, repetition, nurturing love. And maybe some of you older folks might get kind of weary of me for sometimes trying to explain things to young children. But I think it's important that we have a commitment to bring the faith not only to those who are of able mind, but also those who are young and still have need of understanding. 
Jesus uses children here as an example because children oftentimes are a little bit more teachable than teens and adults. A child is more willing to oftentimes be corrected, especially if they're raised in the right way. They're more often able to be corrected than someone who gets offended because of maybe perhaps pride. But brothers and sisters, I want you to emulate children in this respect. None of us, including myself, is above taking or receiving correction. We have to be like children in the midst of one another in receiving constructive criticism and correction. But another application for verse 48 is that we have to be willing to receive even babes in the faith, those who are new to the faith, no matter what age they might be. Those who might come in these doors and they don't even know how to find the Old Testament from the New Testament, or they don't even know how to find the Gospels, they don't know their way around Scripture. We have to be patient with people even like that. But today's text speaks of also the exclusivity of Christ in another way, that He is the only way to be received by the Father. Verse 48, Jesus said, Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You could say also is received by the Father. Unless you receive the Son as your Lord and Savior, unless you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no part in the Father and no hope of eternal life whatsoever. Acts 4.12 says, There is one, there is no other name, Acts 4.12, There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's only in the name of Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. So, rather than arguing about greatness, Jesus said, The one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Verse 48. The one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Brothers and sisters, it's a Christian virtue to put the interests, the cares, the concerns of others above yourself. Um, Mark 9.35 says in this parallel passage, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And I love this passage in Romans 2.4. That the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Now you might say, well, what does this have to do with the text? Well, a servant spirit is one of the things that led me to hope and to turn to faith in God. Uh, there were times growing up as a Roman Catholic, going to public school, I struggled with atheism and unbelief. But one of the things that God used in my life to help me rest assured that God is good and God is merciful and there must be a God was seeing the selfless love of others, especially a loving mother who worked an immensely long day and afterwards came home 
and put us first and always put herself last. That was one of the things that taught me that God is good and had always affected me. Maybe you have someone else in your life that has lived like that, who sacrifices and puts you, their interests above their own for your sake. Maybe a husband or a close friend or someone in the church even. The goodness of God and the service of others can lead one to repentance. And pray to God that you could be that kind of servant to put others first and even yourself, yourself second. Look next at our call not to hinder other Christians. Verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Now, this is, this is John's answer for when Jesus says that they are to receive others in Christ's name. You know, maybe it brought to mind, you know, we're to receive others and even children in Christ's name, but here's a God I want to receive because he's doing stuff and he's not under our circle. Now, we don't know much about this man, who he's talking about. But we know that he was doing work outside the circle of the disciples. And they, the man that they sought to hinder was carrying out, he was carrying out a ministry in the name of Jesus. And we know that his ministry was effective because he was able to cast out demons. And we know that the others were not successful at hindering him because it says here that we tried to prevent him, but it didn't work. Maybe this guy thought, you know what? Isn't it more merciful to cast out demons for those poor demon-possessed people rather than to listen to these apostles? And he made the right decision, and he kept on going. So they tried to prevent him, but they didn't. But Jesus then answers this issue by saying, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now the motivation... The motivation John and the others might have had is that we don't want to stop this guy because he does not follow along with us. In other words, he wasn't trained by Jesus and he wasn't trained by us. Therefore, we don't want him doing his ministry. Now, some pastors might be proud, young pastors especially, they might be real proud of the seminary they went to and they maybe look down at others who didn't go to the same seminary who... They might say, well, you didn't go to the best. You went to somewhere else. But many of you, like me, maybe, are, were thankful. I wouldn't say sinfully proud, sinfully proud, but we're thankful to God that he's given us a Presbyterian and Reformed interpretation of Scripture. And we believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, the Westminster Standards, are the best summary of what Scripture teaches. But when we meet other people who don't hold to the same faith, we shouldn't prevent them from serving the triune God in the best way they see fit, even if they don't hold to the, the faith that we do. Maybe you should pray that God would help them and guide them and lead them, but we shouldn't seek to hinder them. Again, Jesus might say for such a person, like he said to John, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now, we could disagree with other Christians regarding theology, sacraments, and worship, 
but yet we still believe in one holy Catholic or universal and apostolic faith, according to the Nicene Creed. As Paul instructed in Ephesians 4, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the, of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you also are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This encouragement here, though, brothers and sisters, does not mean seek ecumenical relations with heretics, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ, such as the Mormons who add to the Holy Scriptures, such as uh, the Muslims who deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and others such as that. We cannot have ecumenical relations with those who are outside the kingdom. And also, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are outside the kingdom, Muslim or whatever, don't seek to destroy those who reject Christ. Now, to understand our text concerning this Samaritan people, Keep your place in Luke, but I need you to turn to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. This is the history of the Samaritan people. Verse 24, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and Kutha, from Ava and from Hamath and from Seravim, and settled them into the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. Now, go down a little bit later. It does say that they were being killed by wild animals and lions in the area. So this is the, the resolution that the king had. Verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they lived. Okay, all right, so here, here's the, the summary of what it was. The people were taken captive. So they took the, the land of Samaria and they put people of pagan religion and pagan ethnicity in that land. But then later on, because they had problems, the king then said, well, why don't we have a, a Hebrew priest train these people in the faith of the God of Israel? But then they never came along. They still made their own golden idols. And I mean, I'm sorry, they, they still made idols of their own, and they kept them in their houses and worshipped them in the high places. So what we have with Samaria is the origin here in 2 Kings is a people of mixed ethnicity and mixed religion. Even all these years after this period of 2 Kings, 
So getting back to Luke 9. When it says here in verse 51 and following, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem and his messengers on ahead of him and they were entering a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. At first, you could say the Samaritans were willing to accept Jesus and the disciples and to host them. But in the midst of the conversation, they're getting ready to make arrangements. They're saying, well, how many people will be with you? How much lodging do you need? How much food do you need? How much drink do you need? Then they ask the question, well, where are you going to go after you leave our land? Well, we're heading to Jerusalem. Eh, nope, we're not going to have you stay with us because you are not going to the right place. The right place, the holy place, is Mount Gerizim, they would say, not the temple mount where they have the temple in Jerusalem. And that was because they, they had this belief because they had a corrupt religion. Now, the Samaritan temple on top of Mount Gerizim was destroyed by the Jews in um, approximately 112-111 B.C. That didn't help relations between the Jews and the Samaritans. But even to this day, there's still less than a thousand Samaritans, and they still worship on the top of that mountain in the midst of the ruins and celebrate Passover in the open air because they have no longer a temple. And the Samaritan woman in John 4, you remember she argued with Jesus? He, he said, she said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you people, you Jews, you, you worship in Jerusalem. There was, that's the argument again here. And that's why they didn't want to accept Jesus, because their mountain was holy, Jerusalem was not holy, therefore they turned him away. And John and James could not stand their master being turned away, or maybe they couldn't stand themselves being turned away, and here's how they replied, verse 54. When the disciples of James and John saw this, that they were turned away, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They didn't receive Jesus. Should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah so that they would be consumed? Now, Muhammad's book, supposed holy book, the Quran, wasn't completed until the year 60, 632 AD. But you might say, well, Islam invented jihad. Um, I don't think so. There's a long history of people killing other people for not following the religion that they say they must follow. But here we have James and John wanting to join the ranks because they thought that their faith was so great and that they were so great that they should destroy those who reject Jesus. They wanted a holy war, a jihad against those Samaritans. Convert or die. And they didn't, they didn't receive Jesus, so they ought to die. But notice how Jesus rebukes them. Verses 55 and following. He turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. 
Uh, I mentioned earlier that the Samaritans, even to this day, are less than a thousand people. And the reason is a lot of them converted to Christianity during the time of the Byzantine Empire. If they would have all been destroyed, none of them would have had any hope whatsoever eternal life through Christ. But many of them, we could say, hopefully, came to saving faith in Christ throughout history during the, fir- during the 5th century. Now, some of us might want to say we want to pray destruction upon Islam because the people who have that religion want to kill us. They want to kill Jews. They want to kill anyone they deem as an infidel. But that's not our call, and that shouldn't be our desire because Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Just like some of those Samaritans later on and centuries later came to Christ, maybe some of those who seek our life among Islam, God is planning to turn them to his son. God came to seek and save the lost. To be great in the kingdom, we are to receive little ones for the sake of the kingdom. But as well, we are to seek to save the lost rather than seek to destroy them. Christianity is not for jihad or holy war against those who do not believe like we do, but rather we are to pray and to endeavor to use the sword of the Spirit to convict and that they might come to saving faith in Christ. Brothers, Jesus shows you the path of greatness. Receive others in Christ but also serve others in Christ. If you want to be first, seek to serve all. Don't hinder other Christians. In fact, try to encourage them in their faith. Also, don't seek to destroy those who reject Christ. But we don't know if God's plan is to then bring them to saving faith at a later time. Pray that God would enable you to have the boldness to use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to talk to others and to convict others and to teach others of the way of our holy and triune God, that God would then save them from the wrath to come. Brothers and sisters, this is the path to greatness. Let's pray. We thank you, our holy God, for your love for us. We thank you for working mightily in us through Jesus our Lord. Help us, we pray, to seek to be great according to the standard which you have given, great in serving and receiving others and nurturing others in this holy faith that you've given to us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.